0: Hello, my name is Kate Gingell and you're listening to the Remarkableness Podcast, your weekly conversation with remarkable people. And today I'm with the very remarkable Claire Lowenthal, talking about the reality of living with and recovering from anorexia. Claire has had a successful career spanning three decades as author, magazine publisher, book coach and entrepreneur. However, in her younger years, she was also waging an intense private battle, having developed anorexia nervosa at the age of 19. Today Claire shares her own struggles with and recovery from this often misunderstood but very serious illness which will certainly inspire and give hope to others. So Claire thank you so much for agreeing to be here with me today and uh, to talk about your journey with something that's obviously been a struggle, um, obviously you know for, for many years anorexia and uh, but I think I think your story will be helpful for others and um, you know as I say I'm very grateful to you for being here today. My pleasure. Um, So let's start um, just a little bit about your background and um, you know where you came from the family and that sort of thing please. I'm one of three girls I'm the middle child
1: Um, and I was probably the good girl right Um, the high achiever my mother says I was the one that gave her absolutely no trouble for the first 19 years I mean, of my that's life. Honest, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. Goodness. And school? Uh, school went well? And I loved all school. Mm. I was very academic. Mm. Uh, lots of friends. Mm. So I kind of sailed
0: through school. I really enjoyed it. Right, right. So where did things sort of start to perhaps come apart? And do you know, and do you know why? Not completely. Mm. Um, It began as soon as I
1: left school actually, I took myself off to Bathurst uh, thinking I was going to university but Mm. at that stage the college (coughs) at uh, Bathurst was not a university and I'd had a fairly sheltered life I suppose looking Mm. back and it was just a huge culture shock for me to go to Bathurst and really on the first day I knew I'd made a big mistake um and I wanted to come home but my family are of the type that you don't pick things up and drop them Mm. and I hadn't really given it a very good go so I struggled on for a little while but eventually I did come home um and that's really when things got out of control (laughs) um my parents wanted me to do something practical they were happy for me to possibly go back to university the next year, but they didn't want me to waste time. Mm -hmm. So they suggested that I went to secretarial college, Mm. which wasn't really what I had in mind for myself when I left school. Mm. And I just fell into this very deep pit of depression. Um, And really, that's how it manifested to start. Long before I'd lost weight, I I just was incredibly depressed. Mm. i couldn't see myself going to secretarial college certainly couldn't see myself enjoying secretarial college or being a secretary and for someone who had always been very confident it just seemed like all my confidence and really my identity my dreams for myself evaporated Mm. and I started losing weight not uncommonly I'd have to say in a 19 year old Mm. and I guess that's still the bit that's so puzzling where every single day young women start to lose weight and at some point something in their head says you've lost enough but that didn't happen with me
0: it's a and I suppose with a depression I mean I, I, I don't, again like depression I think nobody can really begin to understand exactly what you know what it's like there's no you know pull yourself together or get over it no. it just doesn't it just doesn't work like that but I guess the enjoyment of eating um and the taste of food it just it just went did it? it just well went, everything no... that
1: gave me joy went right I think mm. um if you speak to anyone with clinical depression they'll tell you they find it very hard to connect with anything that mm. gives you pleasure mm. and for me food became the enemy and food was the thing that had power over me mm. and yes very quickly I lost that connection with food which had never been a problem for me I'd loved mm. food and had mm. a very easy relationship with food and with my body there wasn't any of the sort of classic adolescent um, things that you associate no. with girls who, who run into difficulties mm. um, so yes that kind of enjoyment factor uh, very quickly disappeared. And if you're busy avoiding food, you also lose the enjoyment of life pretty quickly because everything, every social activity mm. is connected with food.
0: Mm. And I know you said you were a, um, a high achiever, and I think from from the little I know of you, really, but also very creative too. Did that? Did that? Did you lose that creative spark in yourself? Did that sort of get shut down yes. at that point? As well, it yes. did. Right. Um, everything did, really. Yeah. I mean, I
1: I went to secretarial college. I did my shorthand. I did my typing very badly, <laughs> and. I did nothing else. Mm. It was literally like I shut down. So any spark of creativity was gone. Um, You have to understand that at the same time that that the illness is taking hold, all sorts of physical things are happening Mm. because you're literally starving to death. So your brain isn't getting what it needs to think clearly. Um, All sorts of things are going wrong in your body. Um, I was very lucky because I never got into a lot of the destructive behaviors that other anorexics have Mm, mm. so I wasn't binging and purging and doing things Mm. that you know were really destructive but I lost so much weight so quickly that my body just didn't know what was going on and all your um, sort of survival mechanisms click into place because on some level your body is wanting food yes but the force of the illness is so opposite to that that there's this enormous conflict that just takes so much energy so that
0: becomes the whole focus of your world yeah and just going back to you know, your brain not getting nutrients i mean there's so much um research and science now showing the importance of um the, the link between the gut and the brain Absolutely. so of course, if you're not getting the nutrients in the gut then again the brain is you know starved of that mm. so your whole thinking and behavior and everything it just changes right, from, and, from the norm i mean i was mm
1: impossible to deal Mm. with. I can say that now (laughs) looking back on it my family would have told you that at the time but Mm. um, really the you know my ability to 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 see things as they were was non-existent Mm. and denial is such a huge problem in terms of treatment Mm. because actually getting someone to the point that they admit they've got a problem like most addictions um, is huge and having a rational conversation with someone who is at, at a critically
0: low weight is incredibly difficult yeah and so at what point did your parents or you say right you you know we've got to do something drastic well they reached that point a
1: long time before i did <laughs> um to be honest it probably took them quite a long time to understand what was going on mm. because i'm talking about sort of mm, 1980 now so even less was known about anorexia yeah, sure. back then. Mm. And anorexics are pretty good at hiding exactly how bad things are. Mm. Um, I got sick in winter, you know, I was under lots of layers of clothes. So they probably weren't aware of how thin I was mm. for quite some time. Mm. And at the point that they recognized there was a problem, I was still a long way from that, from recognizing it. Right. So there was quite a battle to get any sort of medical treatment. Mm. And then when we started exploring what I was going to be faced with in a medical sense, it seemed so horrific that we tried lots of other things to avoid going to the so-called experts Mm. um, because we knew it was going to be very difficult.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, you've written an extraordinary book. Um, For those who are listening, it's called The Substance from the Shadow. Uh, and I was saying to you earlier it's uh, it's not a it 's not a joyful book um, <laughs> but it, it i mean it's a it's graphic and uh, the trauma um that you went through and really the draconian measures that were taken um and there was one um part of it where you you, you in the end you you give up um in order to go in you know just at, right the, just, the, let other people take over um the professor who looked after you whilst obviously um i suppose with your best interest at heart somewhere, (laughs) Um, it seemed like uh, extraordinary measures. Would you like to explain a little bit about the the sort of treatment that that was really enforced upon you? Sure. Mm. I suppose I was unlucky. I probably got
1: the treatment at its most harsh. It was Mm. just a timing thing. Um, Having said that, um, there has historically been a very punitive approach to treating um, anorexia. Um, I'm talking more about anorexia than other eating disorders, right. but um, that's because that's my experience. Mm. Um, and I guess I should preface what I say in terms of my treatment um, by saying that it saved my life. Mm. So mm. however brutal it seemed at the time, and to be honest, still seems to me, it, it saved my life mm. and I was going to die. I was. Um, most people reach a point where either your kidneys or your heart give out and with very little warning and I was probably very close to both of those right when you when you went in when I went in Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um in fact I was told you've got two options you can go to the hospital and have the treatment I was already in a general hospital Mm -hmm. um or you can die which didn't Mm -hmm. seem like great options at the time Mm -hmm. and um so Really, and and to be honest, the underlying um, I guess belief with that approach to treatment was you can't ha- you can't have a productive rational conversation with someone who's at a life threatening weight. So the treatment was all about weight rest- restoration as quickly as possible, wow. um, and then you deal with. The underlying causes of course my issue is that we sort of didn't get around to the underlying causes we did a lot of the weight restoration work um so and really we had tried every approach in terms of my weight gain so you know the nice approaches had not worked no, okay. and that's mm-hmm. where you know i have to accept responsibility for how stubborn and difficult i was because i mean it seems so simple doesn't it you need to put on weight so you eat more mm. And even now, I can't explain to you why it was impossible for me to do that on my own. Mm. And I had to be forced. So the treatment that I had was, was um, known as a positive reinforcement program, which there didn't seem much positive about it to me. No, certainly not in so, the <laughs> So just sort of congratulating you on putting on weight really wasn't going to cut it at that stage. Mm. So what they did was they took everything away from you. So you were on bed rest... Uh, not allowed out of bed at all um, and everything down to your jewellery, your um, cosmetics, your toiletries was were taken away from you. The hardest thing for me was I was allowed no contact with anyone I knew mm. so no visitors, no phone calls um, and then slowly uh, and then you lay in bed and you were force fed seven times a day. And if you do that for long enough, you will put on weight. Mm, mm. And then, as you put on weight for every um, pound it was back then, every pound that you put on, you were given something back. So, you might be allowed to have a shower, mm. one shower, um, or whatever. But no matter how compliant you are on that program, you're going to lie in bed and stare at the walls for a
0: very long time and, and when you're being given those meals you're also being literally watched like a hawk for every single mouthful that you well age, you? Okay. anorexics have a bit of a
1: reputation as being less than truthful and although I had gone into hospital to put on weight I think probably the hardest thing for me was being treated with such suspicion mm-hmm. and distrust and and also I was made to feel so guilty about my illness so I was constantly being told what a terrible thing I had done to myself and to my family and Mm. it was terrible but I was sick. You didn't feel like you were doing it to them it was happening. No I mean Mm. it had never really been a conscious thing. Mm. Um, It was something that took hold before I realised what was happening
0: Mm.
1: and so for it to be made out that it was a very conscious thing was really difficult. And to be honest, I really, I feel such shame about my illness to this day. And that's not to do with the illness itself. It mm-hmm. is definitely to do with the things that were said to me about at, the time, ab- at they, that they time. Because forever. all my mm-hmm. defences were gone. Like all my mm-hmm. support systems were taken away. Mm-hmm. And... I was so
0: vulnerable to what I was being told and I believed it. And I guess I mean relationships with staff members, I mean I'm only really thinking, you know, about it now, but if they've you know, if you've got a busy a busy nurse who's or whatever who's told her to watch somebody eating and you might I don't know how long you might take, but that, then there's a strain immediately, I guess, isn't there? And there's an assumption that you're being difficult as opposed Absolutely. to Absolutely as opposed to really finding the whole thing almost impossible to do. So yes. you can't build up a new really, and they probably I suppose they wouldn't have let that happen anyway, would no. they No Well I mean
1: I was supposed to really not have contact with anyone so I wasn't really supposed to be communicating with the other patients. Mm. All of whom were psychotic anyway, so you couldn't really have very Sensible conversations with them, mm. um, and anorexics are difficult patients. Mm. They are, and it's a program that that puts a lot of a lot of responsibility on the nurses. They have to sit and watch you eat. You have a time limit on
0: oh, how long you, you have.
1: Mm. Um, and I did eat very slowly, um, and they. They have to observe everything. Everything is written down and fed back to the doctors who then come Mm. back and quiz you about why you cut your sandwiches into quarters Mm. instead of triangles Mm. and those sort of things. Um, Very meaningful. (laughs) Um, And so we were seen as... as, And quite often they are devious, so they're Mm. getting up to mischief. Mm. So, um, no, you can't really build rapport. Having said that, some of them were incredibly kind to, Mm. to me. Um, some of them were really dedicated psychiatric nurses and I think for some there was an acknowledgement this was incredibly hard for me. Mm. Um, a lot of people, it's actually a relief when it reaches that point because they still want food but they can't give themselves permission to have it. Right. So once they're forced into it, they can quite happily eat Whereas, but every mouthful was torture for me. Mm. Mm. And there were some, I mean, I would sit there and eat and cry and eat and cry, mm.
0: and some were moved, and some weren 't yeah yeah there's a there's a paragraph in your book um and we just we've just talked a little bit about it, but um where you say what I resented most was that my present program focused solely on my eating, ignoring the underlying causes um, i couldn 't believe that these intelligent medical authorities still equated weight gain with cure and um I, you had psychological help as well yes was that was that effective, and do you think there are a lot more um, effective um, i suppose programs from a psychological point of view now? I mean, if somebody got sick now would they would the help that they get from a psychological point of view be very different? It's such an ind- individual thing, mm. Mm. Um, as I said, it's not
1: as harsh as it was, and there are m- more options, mm. having said that. There is no one that I have ever met who has said, I can cure anorexia. Okay. Mm -hmm. And my my professor was the leading professor, probably in the world, Mm -hmm. and he didn't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. Um, There has been a move. um, There's a much more effective treatment model that is uh, suitable for younger people now, which is called the Maudsley approach, Mm -hmm. which is learning to deal with it at home. And what that does is it doesn't transplant the young person from their family environment yeah, and yeah. whatever issues are in the home, mm. they have to sort of come to terms with them while they're gaining weight. Right. So I can see in theory mm. that 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 you know that's much better and the success rate is much higher. higher. Okay. I
0: mm.
1: can't actually see that work that, that would have worked for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd tried for a really long time, mm-hmm. admittedly without that sort of medical support. Right. Um, but but. I think for me um, I don't know that would have worked for other people who aren't sort of in that age bracket um, I still believe that the most important thing is coming to terms with why it happens Mm -hmm. Um, I know part I certainly know the situation and what about that situation was dangerous for me because I lost my identity and anorexia became my identity because yeah. once I was just not going to have that career that I always wished for and hoped for and kind of expected I didn't know who I was yeah. and I couldn't relate to my friends anymore and I I saw no future yeah. so I understand that and I understand that I had the personality type that was ripe for the picking mm. I was um, a highly organized person a perfectionist a bit of a control freak mm-hmm. Um, as I said before I was the good girl Mm. um, and that is the sort of personality that that, that, um, that it happens to Mm. Mm. but I think the key really is finding the therapy and the therapist that is right for you
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Uh, there's lots of different approaches um, and different things work for different people having said that there's so many stubborn cases where everything is tried and unfortunately a lot of people just don't get better Mm, mm. um and anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness does it okay Mm, um which is very sobering because people Mm. trivialize it Mm. i mean you know the 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 wider community get most of their information from sort of sensationalized media stories and they have no understanding of the depth of the problem Mm -hmm. and I think the figure is that around 60 percent of people who seek treatment recover 20 percent struggle and live a limited life and 20 percent never really get better right um but the other people that seek treatment and there's so many people that it's either subclinical so they never actually get a diagnosis or they just really find ways to kind of live with it mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the actual figure is far higher than that yeah. and the sad thing is one in five people who die of anorexia kill themselves do they so mm-hmm. that shows mm-hmm. you mm-hmm.
0: The absolute depths of despair. Yes. That, um, yes, it's just because human. when you're in
1: it, you cannot see mm. any future. Mm. I could mm. not conceive of a life different to mm. the life I had.
0: Mm. And just going back, I, there was another part in your book which really um, sort of shook me <laughs> in its um, in its cruelty. Really, um, at the time, one, you were talking about you know reward um, for putting on weight, but um, your sister was getting married. And um, you were told by the professor that you had to reach a certain weight in order to be able to go to the wedding when actually he'd already agreed with your parents when you first went in that you could go to the wedding regardless because they knew it was so important to you. How did you when you found that out how did you feel? I could not believe that. I just thought that well, was. Well by a, then that mm, didn't
1: come as a huge shock didn't to it me, at all. funnily enough. <laughs> um, yeah, well the the problem with the wedding was I was never going to make that weight in the amount of time that I had. It was completely unrealistic. Mm. And I went into hospital very focused on trying to reach that weight and go to the wedding, but I was never going to make it. And the closer I got to it, and I was eating everything that was put before me, and I, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. And my father had actually said that was the condition of me going into hospital, but right. I hadn't been told that. Mm. So when I found out, I, well, by then that just seemed. They had all the power. They could mm. do whatever they wanted. Mm. And any sense of right and wrong at that point was long gone. And I didn't feel perhaps that I deserved to have a say. Uh, later on, I got a lot more feisty and um, mm. argumentative with my medical people. And <laughs> they actually didn't see that as a sign that I was getting better, but I did. You knew that. You I, knew I, that I did. Well, yeah. um, mm. But um, at that point, you know, if they had have said, well, you can't go... I mean, the thing is, I actually could have got out of bed and walked Mm. out of the ward. Mm. They probably would have scheduled me. But um, by that point, I was so beaten down Mm. and just did what I was told that it never actually occurred to me
0: that I could say no. No, But you, I mean, highly intelligent as you are, and I think um, your feelings towards this professor... And did, you, did you hate him? I mean, that was. Yes. You really did. But you did reconcile. We at did some reconcile, point, and, and that was yes. a, Well, the only word I can really think of is
1: miraculous because mm. he very much became the focus of all my anger. Mm. Um, he was a very convenient person to, 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 to sort of focus on because he had been um, high handed mm. mm. in his approach. Mm. And yet, as I said, he saved my life. And for the longest time, he. Uh, I, uh, sometimes I would see that he was speaking at something, and I couldn't even go and listen to him speak. I couldn't even imagine sort of sitting and watching imagine. him mm. because he had had so much power over me. Mm. But many, many years later, when I was um, much better,
0: mm.
1: I were, uh, and after the book had come out, um, I was asked to go on the board of a charity for um, that support charity for Mm. people with eating disorders but I knew that the professor was on the board so I faced a very difficult um decision because I really wanted to participate and feel that I was giving something back Mm. and you know lobbying government and getting more hospital beds and raising awareness and all those things that I would have been able to do but I was going to have to confront that particular demon and I decided I would and it worked out wonderfully, better than I could have ever imagined. He, he um, acknowledged to me in a very public way that, that he hadn't fully appreciated how difficult the treatment was and that he did the best that he could at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, there was absolutely nothing to forgive. And um, we completely reconciled. So it was a wonderful remarkable. story. Remarkable,
0: yeah. No, it is a, yes, a And I never story. thought I could let go of that anger. No, no. Which, thank goodness. I mean, yes. you, you knew because and that, that would continue to harm you probably yes. forever. If yes. It and, and I can
1: mm-hmm. see now that that you know at that time that was seemed to be the best way of treating it. And look, there mm. were possibly other girls who went through the treatment and weren't nearly as affected mm. as I was. Mm. Um, certainly, some people seem to you know just be able to pick up the threads of their life. It was much harder for me. Mm.
0: And yet, you did in the end. I mean, at what stage you've had a very successful business um, career. And um, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, when I came out of hospital, I really had to rebuild my life from Mm. the ground up. Um, I'd lost everything, Um, I lost sort of the the whole university experience that you normally have straight after school. Um, My friends, found it very difficult to kind of understand what I'd gone through mm. because they were at uni having the life I thought I was going to have. Um, my family just, it, I mean, you can't think of anything worse than watching someone you love starve to death. Mm. And so they were deeply affected, you know, both my sisters and my parents um, were deeply affected by what had happened. And I, I really was just lost. Mm. Um, probably work was what, initially allowed me to step back into the world um I have very little qualifications when I left hospital after sort of in and out of hospital for two years Mm. and I had to start just with a receptionist job um but I was just so incredibly lucky that every job that I ever had somebody saw something in me and gave me opportunities and I guess I learned quickly um, for many years I did jobs that I didn't enjoy but looking back on those I learned all sorts of skills that would be useful to me when I owned my own business much later Mm -hmm. so I did all sorts of things and sort of it was just so wonderful to be judged by something by what I was producing rather than Mm -hmm. standing on the scales and to be valued for what I could Mm -hmm. contribute Mm -hmm. and so Um, For many years after I left hospital in terms of a social life or my ability to deal with Sort of the eating side of social life Mm -hmm. was pretty restricted, but I did I did operate well in a business sense Um, After many many years and and as I sort of overcame my you know the the social side of things as well um, I Started my own business Um, well first of all I had a PR company Uh, just a small PR company and um, I enjoyed that but didn't really like the hard sell loved the writing but Mm. didn't like the hard sell of PR Mm. and then I started a magazine which I had no experience and I didn't really know what I was doing although I started it with a business partner um, and he had a little bit of experience in publishing and so that was 1993 and we started it from my home Mm. and we had no money <laughs> and we it was a small business magazine and we grew it. Well, I bought out my partner quite quickly, mm. so then it became mine and um, it became the largest small business publication in Australia. Amazing. And mm. um, I loved publishing more than I could ever imagine and that was probably the point that I had something that was greater than my problems mm. at The time that I started the magazine, I was still quite restricted in terms of avoiding things that were difficult with me, Mm. for me, with my eating and whatever. But once I had the magazine, I didn't have that luxury anymore. I had to travel. I had to attend functions. You know, I'd go out most nights. I just had to do whatever I had to do to be a publisher. And my eating just had to fit in with that. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the last... That and writing the book were the last two pieces of the puzzle, But I think having achieved a a degree of success in my business life sort of made me think, well, it wasn't quite the path I expected to take to get where I wanted to go. Mm. But I had started out to do a communications course and I'd ended up, you know, in the media and loved it. And even now I sold the business about 10 years ago um, and I've just concentrated on writing since. Mm But I'm so blessed because I love what I do so much. Uh,
0: and do you, I mean, difficult question to answer with the ifs and the buts, but uh, if, if you hadn't have got sick and having had things, relative, I mean, you were very bright, very intelligent anyway as a child, but things had come fairly easy to you. Yeah. Do you actually think you would have had the same level of success? You don't know. No. Um, I think I'm
1: very like my father. Mm-hmm. My father was a successful business person and I kind of grew up with that around me Mm. and of Mm. the three of us i was probably always the one who was more interested Mm -hmm. in Mm. the commercial side of my father's life yeah so i tend to think that probably and i i just love business Mm. i love the cut and thrust and the great thing about having a small business magazine was that i could just sticky beak on everybody Mm. else's business so (laughs) i'm just endlessly fascinated by what makes businesses successful Mm. um Mm. and you know which entrepreneurs can always be successful no matter mm. what they're doing and so I tend to think that probably I would have still sort of found this a similar path yeah um but who knows who knows mm.
0: and do you still have challenges today is it I mean is it do you ever get over anorexia oh, I'd like, love to I'd love to say yes Um,
1: and some people do some people absolutely 100% Mm, mm. get better over time I think I've come to a point where I think it is one of those things that I will live with my whole life but having said that it doesn't rule my life
0: Mm.
1: at all Mm. you know really Mm. if someone had said to me 20 years ago that I could have the freedom I have in my life now I never would have believed them Mm. I can travel I go out all the time every now and then something will happen that throws me slightly um and I won't ever have the same relationship with food that other people have Mm. but that's not the worst thing in the world Mm. it doesn't stop me going where I want to go being with the people I want to be with um and so I sort of feel I manage it and it diminishes all the time and importance as other things take over yeah and as I look more I mean the problem with having an eating disorder is it's such an introspective state and you don't look beyond it I mean I didn't even really think about what I was doing to the people around me mm. at the time but the more I'm moving along in recovery the more outward I'm looking mm. and it if people are going to judge me they're going to judge me and so i've kind of you know for the longest time i was so ashamed of my 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 back my background that i hid it um at the point that i wrote the book i couldn't really do that anymore <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. um, it was like well this is yeah. me and yeah. it was mm-hmm. hard because i had a professional reputation mm-hmm. and you know in business you've got to appear to be perfect and never make mistakes and mm-hmm. i and you know i was publicly admitting that I had made plenty of mistakes. Mm. But that's me. And yeah. um I think the problem is that so often we only hear about people when they're critically ill and mm. we don't hear that they go on and live happy, productive lives. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's an important message. I mean, yes, some things are still hard for me. Um but it doesn't mean I haven't led a meaningful life. No,
0: no. And there's such I think there's such value for others in you being vulnerable and open about it actually as hard as it might be Um, because I think you know there are so many people out there probably who are dealing with a family member or um, you know somebody that they know and not really understanding it so I think it adds to that understanding and just really the last few minutes in in closing I mean I'd, I'd it, it tends to happen mostly to girls, um, but I know that you were saying that it does happen to boys as well. What are, Do you know what the statistics are there? From the- Traditionally, it mm-hmm. has
1: been um, a lot a lot more a female condition, mm-hmm. but increasingly um, boys are getting it. Right. Um, often they come at it more from the exercise point of view, so mm-hmm. they're more focused on getting this type of... Um, body that they want rather Mm. than being focused on food um but um it it's really scary how quickly now with with boys um i think the figure that the butterfly foundation have come up with is that one in four children with anorexia will be male
0: one in four Mm. really
1: yeah Mm. um that's the widely accepted for anorexia and bulimia is 10 percent but the butterfly foundation say one in four and that's terrifying yeah and also it's getting younger and younger i mean Mm. you know young girls are presenting now at an age that you know you just
0: can't believe they even know what a diet is it's extraordinary level of awareness or heightened level of awareness at such a young age isn't it and i think you know we were talking about mental health as and I have done on a number of the podcasts that it is becoming an increasing issue whether it's an eating disorder or just depression or anxiety it's Mm. such a common thing in teenagers now and Mm. there's
1: there's such a high level of comorbidity with um eating disorders Mm. so um 33 to 50 percent of anorexic patients um, have a mood disorder such as depression right. and about half of anorexia patients have anxiety disorders including obsessive compulsive disorder or social Goodness. phobia so you're not mm. just dealing with one thing and that mm. was very much my experience mm. I,
0: I mean my depression was really completely unacknowledged mm. Mm i suppose i mean yes it was that, that many years ago i mean not that it was many many but at mm. the same time it was un- it would it would have yeah. been seen at least to have been uncommon at that stage yes. and um so what are the i mean what is your advice for people who do know somebody or if they've got a family member um and where where might they go for help mm. Mm. it's so hard i get off <laughs> asked this so often
1: and i and i, I still don't feel well equipped to really answer the question the things that I would point to is early intervention mm. would be my number one right the earlier that you get a diagnosis and get treatment the better
0: hmm
1: all stats show that the longer you leave it the harder it is to overcome mm-hmm. so if you even have a suspicion that there's a problem yeah do something about it right. normally the first port of call is to your GP mm-hmm. they'll look at you know again they'll do the measurements the BMI mm. all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. and um they'll make a decision but it's really something that needs to be dealt with with experts which mm. might sound a bit strange coming from me when I've you know said that I wasn't all that impressed with the experts but still mm. as it, you, said, saved your life you know a GP just mm. I mean they're not it's a really specialized thing mm. Mm. and you really have to become the advocate for your let's say a child Mm, mm. um you know loved one friend whoever it might be because probably they're not in a position to be making wise decisions Mm -hmm. for themselves so if you go and you see someone you're not happy go to someone else Mm. you know Mm. you've you've got to be quite kind of proactive about it yeah the next thing i'd say is get information so that you really understand what you're dealing with Mm -hmm. and get support for yourself and for the family because it affects everybody yep Yeah. Um, the Butterfly Foundation, which is the major national body, is absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a really, like, just go to the website and okay. you'll, you'll find mm-hmm. what you need there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I guess in terms of just the way you approach the person, there's a couple of things that I think are important. One is to really acknowledge the struggle. Having said that it's almost impossible for other people to understand it, mm-hmm. at yeah. least acknowledge that for them this is real. Mm -hmm. You might not understand it, but for them it's real.
0: Um,
1: I think separate the illness from the person. You know, so often when you get frustrated like that, it it comes across as, you know, you're angry with that person. Mm -hmm. But if you can say, well, I understand this is the illness talking, not not you, you I think that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. I think encourage them to try and maintain some social connection because that was such a big thing for me because... You know, I hadn't. I had nothing. Mm. Um, and even though people want to avoid seeing people because they're scared of being put in a situation where their their eating will be questioned, it's so important that that they don't isolate themselves completely.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I guess the other thing which I think I mentioned was that when you when you sort of take away their anorexic identity, it has to be replaced with something. And going back to my argument with a just a, a, a weight gain based approach, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't change anything in terms of how people see themselves. You've taken away the only thing in their life that had meaning, and it has to be replaced with something. So it's really important that people do what I did and find something that they are so passionate about mm-hmm. that they can replace it okay. and they can get a sense of self worth through other more healthy ways. Um, I learned the lesson that it's not always good to put it all into one thing because when I sold the magazine, I sort of struggled a bit because mm-hmm. I was Claire the publisher, and Perfect. if I wasn't Claire the publisher, what was I? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you have to have a balanced approach to it. But mm. for me, you know, you, you mentioned before that that as a child, I'd been a very creative Um, child Mm -hmm. and that's been important for me too to reconnect with the things that I loved before I got sick yeah and to get joy from them um you know and so I think it's really important to understand that that you actually are taking something very important away from someone when when you separate them from Mm -hmm. their illness of course that's the right thing to do but but you need to acknowledge that just they can't automatically go back to where they were before. No, I was mm. a completely different person, even though mm. it had probably been two years of my life. Mm. I could never be the person I mm. was
0: before I got sick and had the experience yeah. that I did. And it's also an area, I suppose, that is as, as slightly upside down as it sounds, where you actually do have some control in some way. If you're saying, if you know, if you're saying no to food when you start getting sick. Yes um and so you lose all that control because you're then being forced so to have some control in your life in some areas must be and
1: that's a scary uh, thing for people
0: to hand back to
1: you because you haven't used it wisely
0: (laughs) and and Mm. everyone was terrified that Mm. i would
1: go backwards you Mm. know i Mm. chose to live alone Mm. which was dangerous but the only way i could see to prove to people that i could be trusted Mm. um and it's very scary to suddenly have control and in some ways that has taking responsibility for my life has been my journey,
0: mm.
1: um, and I've in some areas done that very well, in other areas it's been harder for me. Mm. Um, but I think you do go back to a very childlike state. I mean, physically as well, but mm. but certainly emotionally yeah. when you've got an eating disorder. And I became incredibly compliant, and I'd been pretty feisty before that, but mm. <laughs> um, and I'm probably pretty feisty now. Yeah. But <laughs> so. um, in that in between period. Um, there were people, not just in terms of my treatment, but decisions made about, about all sorts of things in my life that someone of my age would normally be making for themselves. Mm. And I really had to take responsibility. And that's been quite a long, a long process yeah. for me. Um, but I think we've come a long way in terms of providing that support to people probably a lot earlier mm. than when I was sick.
0: Yeah. Good, and if um, just in closing, if people did want to contact you, um, perhaps to have a chat yep. with you or find out more, how do they do that?
1: Um, I have a website right. which is for my writing, mm-hmm. um, but there's a there's a um, message um, functionality there that people right. can just send me a private email, okay, and I'm always more than happy to talk to people. Um, mm. And you know, like I said, I don't have any magical answers, but sometimes mm. it's just it's comforting for people to talk to someone who's yeah. been who's been through it yeah. um and you know in terms of other sort of support as i said i think the butterfly foundation is a fantastic organization okay, um
0: Wonderful. and they're, they're really good people to contact but certainly people can get me through the website lovely and we'll put that website up on the show notes so um, thank you so much claire Remar- My pleasure. remarkable story and you're a remarkable woman thank you thank very you. much indeed for being with me today thank Thanks. you Thank you for joining me today on the Remarkablist podcast with the remarkable Claire Lowenthal. If you feel Claire's story could inspire or give hope to others in similar circumstances, then of course please share the podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with Claire herself, then go to www.clairelowenthal.com. Thanks again for joining me and see you next week.